Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. This morning we are continuing, well, we're actually finishing the last week in our series that we have been working through called Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets. Better Decisions, Fewer Regrets. And what we've been exploring over this series is the relationship between the questions that we can ask of ourselves and the choices that we actually can make that lend to better situations in our life. And we've acknowledged from the very beginning of this series that good questions give us the wisdom that we need to make better decisions and ultimately live with fewer regrets. And I know something about you, whether, we, whether we've talked a lot or not, I know that you would love to live with a few less regrets in your life. Some of them we can't take away because they're, they're past, but certainly we've got plenty of choices left in our life. And maybe, just maybe, by asking some of these questions, we can experience a few less regrets in our future. And we, this, the thing about these questions is they're only helpful if we ask ourselves. So they're not helpful for anyone else. You don't ask someone else these questions. You ask yourself. We ask ourselves. We answer honestly. And then we act accordingly. They're only helpful if we actually are honest with ourselves and we do something about it. But the, and also the thing that we acknowledged early in the series was that our decisions that we make, the choices that we make, don't just impact us, do they? They impact those around us, either our direct family or our friends or our, our church family or even, if we think about it, and we might have been on the receiving end of this, at some point, someone in our past, generations ago even, made decisions that ultimately impact you now, don't they? Haven't they? They might have chosen to migrate to Australia, and so the fact that you were born here is based on the decisions someone else made that ultimately impacted you. And some of those are, are relatively insignificant, some of them are groundbreaking. Some of them are, in some, I don't want to overstate it, but earth-shattering in terms of our, the life that we end up born into. Sometimes it's generational sin and things like that that we end up suffering from only because someone made a, a dumb choice a few generations ago and it ends up impacting us and where we are now. And so that's why I think that this series has been so significant for us because it's not just about us. It's about those around us. It's about those that will come after us. And I think we owe it to our grandkids, our great-grandkids, even beyond that, that perhaps some of the decisions we can make now can enrich their life in wonderful ways as well. We owe it to them to get this right. So to give you a really quick recap of where we've gone over the series, the first question that we asked was the, was the integrity question. It is, am I being honest with myself really? 
because we're really good at deceiving ourselves, we're really good at convincing ourselves of what it is that we would like to do. And so to pause and ask ourselves the question, am I being honest with myself? And then ask it again and add really on the end of it, it gets to the heart of what's, what, you, what is it you actually want and are you being honest with yourself really? The second question was the legacy question. What story do I want to tell? Because we are all writing the story of our life, one decision at a time. And most of the time, we don't think about that. But at some point, we are going to look back over our life, or someone else will, at our funeral or whatever. We don't like to think about that, but we're all going to have one. Um, at some point, there will be, you will look back over your life or have opportunity, and there will be stories that exist. And those stories were written one question, one decision at a time. So what story do you want to tell? By zooming out into that helps you understand or perhaps help you discern what's the right thing to do based on how you wanted to explain it to your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids or to the next boss that you're going to work for after you get fired from this one for your behavior or whatever that looks like. What story do you want to tell? The third question was the conscience question. Is there a tension that deserves my attention? Is there a niggle about this idea of something that you want to do? You want to go buy that car, but something just, you're actively trying to ignore a niggle in your mind about it. And you don't quite know what it is, and it might, that niggle might even be a person saying it's not a good idea, maybe your spouse, or your mum, or your, your kids, or whatever that looks like. Is there a tension that you need to pause and take notice of. Even if you continue, even if you eventually ignore it and press forward, that's on you. That's fine. Because not all tensions are the Holy Spirit in our life. Not all tensions are a well-meaning voice in our life either. But we at least owe it to ourselves and to those around us to stop and, uh, and look and ask, is there a tension that deserves, excuse me, deserves our attention? The conscience question. The fourth question that I looked at last week was perhaps the most uh, significant one. It's my favorite, and it's the maturity question. What is the wise thing to do? We live in a world of gray, and there are a great many things that we could apply, uh, apply morality to or ethics or legalism or anything like that to decide whether it's a right or wrong choice. And some of those things are really clear. We don't kill our friends or anyone for that matter. It's against the law. That's not a hard decision to make. Yet at the same time, there's a bunch of other decisions which aren't specifically against the law. And so what do you do? What's the wise thing to do? And that, that question, the maturity question, because it requires maturity to ask and answer honestly, actually helps us make decisions in the gray areas of the world. And there are a, a lot of them. There are a lot of them. But I also invited us to expand that question. So rather than just what is the wise thing to do, I invited you to, to, to expand it to say, based on my past experiences, you're unique and you have a unique worldview and unique uh, things you struggle with and, and unique things that you're good at. Based on my past experiences, my current situation, because where you are will make you in a different place to, to if you had encountered this problem 10 years ago, you're in a different place to where you were then. So what, based on my past experiences, my current circumstances, and then my future hopes and dreams, where do you want to be? Where do you want to go? 
does the decision ultimately take you closer to that end, or does it take you away from that end? So based on my past experiences, my current circumstances, and my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing to do? Four questions that take us to today, the last of our series. And as I've spoken with so many of you over the last few weeks, it seems that you found this really helpful. Helpful to actually stop and think about. And that was, that's always my hope, not always my success, but always my hope in preaching the gospel, in preaching from this stage, is that I would be able to offer something of help in our living our everyday life. And so I'm, I'm really excited that this series has been so helpful for you. And so what I'm going to, we don't do this very often. What I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to talk to someone next to you for a moment. Don't look so nervous. You're going, hang on a sec, I come to church so that you talk to me. I don't have to talk to anyone else. Don't do this to me. And the introverts in the room go, no, I'm not going to talk to anyone. I want you to mention, just for a moment, just for 30 seconds or so, I want you to tell the person next to you or someone near you, maybe the person, if it's not your spouse or partner, but someone else. Maybe, because you can talk with them about it over lunch later. I want you to tell them which question has been most helpful for you. Helpful challenging, helpful confronting, helpful whatever, it doesn't matter. Which of those questions over the course of this series has been most helpful for you? Yeah, let's go with that. And if this is your first Sunday here, you can say, this one's going to be most helpful because I haven't heard the rest yet. So, all right, give you 30 seconds. If you're joining us online, chap in the comments, which one has been the, which question's been the most helpful for you over this series? Yeah, that's probably 30 seconds. So what I wanted to bring you back together. What I'm, excuse me. <coughs> what I'm really excited about in that moment, what I'm really excited about in that moment was some of you pulled out a notebook of the stuff that you had taken notes on over the course of this series. How cool is that? Um, so I encourage you, if, you know, if something's come up and you go, wow, actually, yeah, I'd never thought about it, but that was really helpful. Maybe pull out your diary if that's what you've got or whatever. Make a note of it. Think about it. Pull out your phone after the message and make a note of it so that you can remember it. Remember that challenge. Because sometimes it's not until we're actually invited to tell someone about it that we realize what it is that we have been thinking. So I really hope 
that this continues to be helpful for you. And if, if you have missed any of the weeks, go back and watch them. We've got them online. You can watch them anytime you like on, on our YouTube channel and also our podcast. You can, you can uh, listen to it there as well while you're mowing the lawn or whatever. Super helpful, I think, to go back and revisit some of this stuff sometime, particularly if you missed it, but also if, you, if I talk too fast and you need to hear it again, and I know that's true of some of you, then that's super helpful to go back and listen. Now, if we think about this whole series, some of the questions have been super confronting. Some of them we didn't like it. It made us uncomfortable. And if I were to be honest, because I've preached nearly this whole series, in fact, I've prepared the, all, the, all the messages in this series, I've actually sat and asked myself the questions for all throughout this entire series, and it's been super uncomfortable. So I get that for, for some of these questions, you don't actually want to, even though you know what you need to do, you don't want to do it because it's hard. I get it, and I've made those choices a few times myself, but we owe it to ourselves and to others to at least look and ask the question. Now, as we jump into our message for today, I need to be upfront with you about today's message. Today's message is about relationships. And there's a couple of things that I need to, to uh, caveat, I suppose. The first thing is that I know that some of you in your journeys have significant broken relationships. And so as we talk about this idea of, of, um, of showing love in relationships, it can bring up things that we didn't get right. And so I, I invite you as we explore this, if something comes up for you that you want to talk through or, or that just feels uncomfortable, stick with us. Because I believe that it could be today, if there's serious brokenness in your past, there is opportunity for healing that God wants to do in and through and by His Spirit. And so stick with me, even if it's, you, you hate what I've got to say in this moment because of, you know, whatever. Take this as an invitation from God to move forward with hope, meaning, love, and purpose. That's my first thing. Second thing is this. There is, unlike the other four questions in this series, there is no guarantee that this is going to actually help. The other four questions, if you ask them of yourselves, if you are honest with yourself and then you act accordingly, pretty much guaranteed positive outcome. Straight up, that's it. Better, more wisdom, better decisions, and other than a few exceptions of things that are totally outside of your control, more or less, it's going to work out. This question, there is no guaranteed positive outcome. Sorry. And the reason is that a relationship is only partly about you. A relationship involves two people. Two people that have independent thought, two people that have independent will. And so, when it comes to our relationship, in fact, that's a good thing, isn't it? Because if, if the other part of a relationship is, is controlled and has to be there because of your control or your power or your authority, do you know what you call that? That's called domestic abuse. And so instead, we have to have a meaningful and fruitful relationship, you've got two parties that decide to be together. But what that means is that, and this is news for some of you, you don't have control of the other person's choices. Maybe you need to hear that and nothing else this morning. 
And so the reason that this one doesn't work 100% of the time is because it's not always up to you. But what I want to do with the rest of our time is help you do what is up to you to make all the difference in the world. And I think, I believe that this is relevant because we all have relationships. It's a universal reality. No matter how introverted you think you are, you cannot exist in the world without relationships of some form. Whether it's your spouse or your partner, whether it's your parents, whether it's your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, whether it's your friends, your colleagues at work, whether it's your fellow church family, followers of Jesus, whether it's no matter what, whether it's your, your sports team that, you've, that you're a part of, you know, whatever it is, you've all got relationships. So this is true of everyone. And I don't risk overstating things by saying that I believe this question has the power to enrich every relationship in your life. Even though it may not work every time because it's not up to you, I do believe it has the power to enrich every single relationship in your life, even to heal the lost and broken relationships in your past. And I've got to be honest with you, if you're yet to find that special someone in your life, and I don't think there's too many people like that in this gathering, necessarily, but perhaps you're joining us online, if you've yet to find that special person in your life, asking this question, I think, shapes you into the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. You catch that? Because every, if, you're, if you're yet to connect with someone in a sort of intimate relationship, you're still looking. And I believe this question has the power to shape you into the sort of person that the person you want to be with wants to be with. Does that sound good? All right. So the question, I know you, it, it's killing you. Like, Josh, just get to the question. Stop selling it and just give me the question. And the question is simply this. What does love require of me? You might have heard me even mention this previously in recent years around this church. The question that will transform your relationships and has the greatest power to do so is the question, what does love require of me? And this one is applicable across every relationship that we have. Professional, personal, intimate, I believe it can do this. And this question of, of love, I'm going to go straight into the text for, this, for today around this. This idea of the question, what does love require of me, comes directly from Jesus. We're going to look at John chapter 13, verses 1 through to 35. Strap in, folks. We're going to skip a bit in the middle, but I want to give you the context of this. So this is Jesus in, in John's gospel, this is Jesus' um, last moment of significant teaching for his disciples. And many of you would know this if you've been around church for a while. It's just before the Passover festival. Jesus gathers with his disciples in, an, in, in a room. They share a meal. We're starting off in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. After all of his ministry, he knew it was coming to an end. Having loved his own, that is his disciples, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
And the evening meal was in progress. And the devil, the enemy, had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So this was already happening. There's already tension in the room. There's one guy not behaving quite right. It's just a bit weird. And Jesus knew that the Father, that is God, had put all things under His power and authority. Don't miss that. That's going to matter a great deal in a minute. Jesus knew that the Father had put everything in all of creation under His authority in this moment in time. And that He had come from God and was returning to God. So, think about that. Because He had everything under His authority, Jesus chose so... He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, his robes. He's just got his undergarment, which functionally is his servant garments. And wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Drying them with the towel that was wrapped around his waist. Now, our 21st century context, most people after a work day, I don't want to be anywhere near their feet keep your shoes on, thanks very much. But in the first century, this was a significant part of, of, because, you know, they didn't have enclosed shoes, it was sandals, dusty roads, all that. And so most of the time, you didn't bathe every single day because, you know, it, was, it wasn't necessarily as important, but you certainly washed your feet regularly. So every time you went into a household, there was the opportunity for you to wash your feet. Children would wash their parents' feet. If you uh, servants would wash their uh, master's feet. Or sometimes if it was just sort of a collegial gathering of people, of friends and family, you just wash your own feet. Because, you know, you're the only one, really, that wants to touch your own feet. Let's be honest about that. But in this moment, Jesus takes the role of a servant and washes his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel. And he came to Simon Peter, who often opens his mouth and says something stupid. He's a disciple that we can all relate to, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you, you don't realize what I am doing for you, but later you will understand. And Peter says, no. You shall never wash my feet, Jesus. You won't be my servant because you are my Lord, you are my Savior, you shouldn't be lowering yourself to do something like this, says Peter. But Jesus responds to him and he says, but unless I wash you, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Unless I wash you, you're not mine. Unless I wash you, unless I do this for you, you we, we're not in relationship. We cannot be in relationship, says Jesus. We learn more about what that means later. Then, the, then Lord, Simon Peter responds, having missed the point completely, says, okay, not just my feet then, but my hands and my head as well. Give me the whole body. Jesus, if you're going to wash me, let's wash me. Bring it on. If I get to be a part of, if I get to be in relationship with you by being washed, then let's go. The, let's go. Come on. And Jesus, probably giggling a little bit, smiling, shaking his head, whatever. He answers, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean. Though not every one of you, he says. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not every one was clean. 
Now, there's a, there's a, I guess there's a complex theological thing going on here, where if we look forward to the future of things, Jesus says those who've had a bath don't need to be fully washed. You only wash your feet. You don't, they don't need to be served in that way. And we see here the picture of the Christian relationship. Just a quick, quick side note. This is the picture of the Christian relationship. Is that Jesus gave his life for us. And when we accept that, what do we do? We are baptized. And the baptism is a public declaration of faith. A washing clean of our sin and our brokenness so that we have new life in Christ. We die to ourself and are raised to new life in Christ. So we are washed clean. And from that moment on, we don't need to be baptized again. There's only one baptism the Apostle Paul talks about. One faith, one baptism. So once we're in with God, we're in with God. And all that is required is that we return to Jesus when we are dirty, when we have walked the roads of this life and are left with brokenness, hurt, pain, shame, the things that, well, frankly, make us a bit un bit less clean. And Jesus washes them again. And that is all that's required. Just a side note, but a, I think a significant one. That once we have accepted Jesus, all that is required is that we just return to Him once again and He serves us by washing our feet, by washing away the dirt that clings to us sometimes. But the passage continues. When he finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've just done for you, Jesus asked? You call me teacher and Lord, and you should, because that's what I am. But now that I, your Lord and teacher, not your slave, not your servant, your Lord and your teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. To which, you know, in, in, you could almost hear the conversation of going, well, Jesus already washed their feet, so they're not going to be that bad. So, yeah, I guess I'll do that. That's fine. But he says that now that I've washed your feet, you need to do the same for one another. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So I have served you. You are required then to serve one another. Because very truly I tell you, Truly, this is the truth, Jesus is saying. This is the truth. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the king that sent the message, the one who sent him. Now that you know these, you will be blessed if you do them. So friends, the picture here is that Jesus has taken the image or the, the, the posture of a servant before his disciples and washed their feet. And he says, you're not better than me, so if, I'm gonna, if I can do this and humble myself, you can do it as well, and you probably should. No, he just says, you should. If, if I'm doing this and you're not better than me, let's be clear, then if I do it, you've got to do it. And then the narrative continues as he predicts, as Jesus predicts Judas's betrayal and he sends Judas off to, to go and do what he needs to do. And then we pick up the passage in verse 31. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, 
Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will glorify the Son in Himself, and will glorify Him at once. Now that's confusing because there's so many glorifieds. What it's saying is that what Jesus is about to experience will bring ultimate glory, not only to, to God, but to Himself. Another picture that this Jesus is Jesus the Lord, not, not Jesus the one that's worse than us. It's Jesus the one who's going to have the ultimate glory, the ultimate glory. So He leaves no doubt that if Jesus served, we need to serve. He says, my little children, I will be with you only a little bit longer. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, those that have been accusing me of stuff this whole time, I tell you now where I'm going, you cannot come. You cannot go with me in this moment in time. And then here it is, verse 34. Based on everything that you have seen me do, based on all of my teaching, based on everything that you know, Jesus says to his disciples, a new command I give to you. A new command. This one is going to be more significant than all the others in your relationships with one another. A new command I give you, love one another. How? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, he says, the world will know. The world will know, the world will recognize, the world will know that you are my followers, my apprentices, my disciples, the ones that chose to follow me, the ones that say that I am Lord. The world will know because of the way you love, not the way you worship, not the way that you attend church, not even the way you give to the offering. The world is going to know that you are my disciples by the way that you love. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And I, I wonder, in that moment, so we've got to think about this. It's always helpful to reflect on this as from the way the disciples would have heard it. In all of biblical interpretation, one of the key things we must do is listen to and absorb the teaching based on how those that heard it would have heard it. And we think of, as I have loved you, we go to the cross, don't we? We think, okay, as I have loved you, okay, Jesus loved us by going to the cross. Okay, so we love each other like that. Great. That's a pretty high bar, but okay, we can give it a crack. But how did the disciples hear it? They didn't hear it like that because they, they didn't know the cross was coming. How did they hear this teaching? Well, what did Jesus ask of the disciples? Follow me. I can imagine he could have gone around the table with every single one of the disciples and said, so Matthew, how have I loved you? Well, Jesus, I was a tax collector. I was hated by all of my friends. I didn't have any friends because I was a thief on behalf of the Roman Empire. I was stealing. I was basically a thief with, with hired guards because Rome, the Roman guards could enforce whatever tax I set on my own people to make profits. 
So no one would talk to me, Jesus. I hung out with all the other tax collectors and all the other sinners of disrepute in the community. God, Jesus, I wasn't that popular at all. So, Matthew, how did I love you? Well, Jesus, you were like the first person to talk to me all day. And you walked up to me and you said, follow you. When I hadn't even made it through theology college, as a young, as a Jewish boy, I would have flunked out of the training that all Jewish boys went through to figure out if they were good enough and, and learned enough to, to become an apprentice of a rabbi. That's part of the whole schooling process back then. I flunked out of that years ago. I became a tax collector because I wanted to pursue money. No one liked me. But you, you said, follow you. But I wasn't qualified. I've already flunked out. But Jesus, you said, follow me. That's right, I did, Matthew. I did. That's how I loved you in that moment. I saw you for who you are and who you could be. And I said, follow me because through you, I'm going to help change the world. And I reckon Jesus could have gone around to all of the disciples and had a conversation like that. But how did, what were you? Where were you when I called you? How did I show love to you in this life? Did I raise your friend from the dead? Did I give you worth when you didn't have it? And so something that I think we need to consider in this moment is, where were you when Jesus called you? If he had. Where were you? Because I think when we, when we reflect on what does love require of me, and we think about how has Jesus loved us, part of that love is reflecting on where we were when Jesus first loved, when we first realized Jesus' love for us. Where were we? What were we doing? Because that gives us a snapshot, a picture, perhaps, of where we might expect others to be that require our love. Because they're not going to look like you and they're probably not going to live like you. They're not going to have the same values as you, perhaps. Yet, and in the same way Jesus loved you, we are called to show love, grace, acceptance to those that in all accounts are not going to look anything like what we expect. If someone were to walk into this church that looks nothing like any of you, in whatever way that you think is important, how would we respond? What would love require of us? Because what were we like when Jesus first called us? were we like when Jesus first called us? But the, and the other part of this that I think we've got to pay attention to, the second, that's the first challenge, I think. Where, where were we when Jesus called us? But the second challenge to consider, I think, is the reality that in this moment in time, well, for, sorry, for us, let me, let me frame this. Back then, there was no more temple system to show devotion 
to God. Jesus said in the, fu- in the future there's going to be no temple system. I'm going to tear it all down. So how are you going to show devotion to God? It's not going to be through attending church. It's not going to be through going to the temple and offering sacrifices. The way you're going to show devotion to God is through the way that you love one another. I sort of mentioned this earlier. But I think that's a challenge for us in this season. Is how are you showing your devotion to God? Are you showing your devotion through rocking up to church, giving? Or are you showing your devotion through the way that you love in community? Because I think, I think love matters more. Just saying. As someone whose livelihood depends on your giving, I think the love is more important. Because I think that changes everything. And so what I find really interesting about this is that you notice we go back to the passage that Jesus knew that everything was under his control. He had all the power and authority on the earth in verse 3. So with all of that power and with all of that authority, Jesus chose to serve. So instead of commanding it of his disciples like a king or a lord or a master normally would, instead of just simply commanding it and saying, you should love because I say so, what does Jesus do? He says, you should love because I did so. With all the authority on heaven and on earth, Jesus washes his disciples' feet and loves them to the end. And so friends, for us as followers of Jesus, we don't love because Jesus commands us to. We love because he first loved us. And if we're honest, this is hard. (laughs) Really hard. Easily the hardest of all the questions that we have talked about. Why? Because when we sit and we ask ourselves the question, what does love require of me? All the loopholes evaporate. All of them. If we are called to love as Jesus loved, a sacrificial, self-giving love, then all of our loopholes evaporate. All of our excuses, oh, they don't really deserve it. Oh, they weren't nice enough to me. Oh, if they, if they call me first, then I will talk to them. Oh, if they, if they um, reach out, then I will forgive them. Oh, if they come this far, then I'll go that far. Did Jesus wait for us to come to Him before He gave His life for us? No. He came to us. And so in this, if we are to love the way Jesus first loved, us, then all of the excuses that we might give, oh, they disagree with me politically. When they change their opinion on this, then I'll love them. Doesn't fly. Doesn't work. And this is also hard because because we can't manipulate it, because we can't reinterpret it, and because we can't justify our way around it, This exposes the hypocrisy of the church. It's got really quiet. Because it is profoundly true. That I'm a hypocrite and so are you. 
because we're human and because we don't get right what we want to get right every day. We don't get right what we say we value every single day. And so this question, when we ask it honestly, exposes our hypocrisy, the places we are not loving the way that we should. It invites us to do something different. It invites us to realize that hypocrisy is not the end of the story. Jesus had a fair bit to say about hypocrites, but he also still died for them too. So this one makes us a little uncomfortable as a church. And so, if you're unsure, this is the way I boiled it down, and it even rhymes. If you're unsure what to say or do in a relationship, ask, what does love require of you? If you're unsure what to say or do, whether to call them, whether to not call them, whether to forgive them or not forgive them, or go the extra mile when you don't think they deserve it, if you're not sure what to say or do, ask, what does love require of you? It'll tell you. Whether you want to hear it or not, And if you tell me, Josh, this is too hard, I'd say, you're right. And if you're, ask, if you're telling me it's too hard, congratulations, you're grasping exactly what it is Jesus is asking. And the hint is that we cannot get this right until we truly realize how much Jesus gave for us. We can only love because God first loved us. Most of the time, if we're honest, we know what this looks like. I don't need to expound it. I don't need to explain it in a thousand different ways. You know what love looks like. But if you're not sure, there's two passages of Scripture that I want you to look at. And I'll summarize them, but you can look at them in your own time. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and onwards. And 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1, right through to the end. Love is... And you've heard it, if you've ever, ever gone to a wedding. Anyone ever been to a wedding? What was the passage? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. There's no record of wrongs. If you're thinking about get, getting married, this could be a great passage. doesn't delight in the evil of another, but it rejoices in the truth, regardless of how much it hurts. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Friends, that is what love requires of you. That's what love requires of you. And if that wasn't enough, the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, humility, self-control. That's love. So if you're not sure what to say or do, ask, what does love require of you? And if you're still wondering, have a look at what the Apostle Paul wrote as he reflected on everything he was seeing and everything he heard and everything he knew, he realized this is what love requires. 
And when we look with enough courage to look closely, we realize there's no doubt left of what it is that love requires of you. And this is high, I get it. As I was preparing for the message this week, I had two conversations early in this week. Where I had to think seriously. Because every time, every single time I preach about something, God makes me live it before I tell you to live it. So frustrating. But I had two conversations before I'd even sat down to write the message. I had two conversations where I needed to ask, what does love require of me? And love in both of those situations was to own my mistakes as a leader and apologize rather than power up and just say I was right because I wasn't. Love required that of me. And I don't, I have no, and one of those conversations went the way I'd hoped and the other one didn't. But neither of those was up to me. What was up to me was, what does love require? Love required that I apologize and take responsibility. And friends, if I can be real with you for a minute, some of your relationships, some of your marriages could do with a dose of this. All of ours could. Of taking a moment to apologize and take responsibility. It might not be your fault, but it is what love could require of you. And even if the other person never changes their behavior, you put that in God's hands and love as Jesus loved you. And sometimes, love requires that you listen and understand a point of view that you disagree with. If we were to think about how we live this out as a church, in our culture, this whole idea of being for Gawler is grounded in this question. What does love require of us to exist in this town? It means being for the things of this town, whether we fully agree with them or whether we don't. The people on the other side of it are people that we can be for in some way. We've just had an election. You might be totally against whoever, the, those, the political um, party that got into leadership. You might be totally against them. What does love require of you anyway? Does it require that you understand what they're about and how you can support it either way? I don't know. Maybe I might suggest that it does. That maybe in our, in our political system, maybe instead of being against stuff, maybe we can understand and take a moment to listen. Maybe that's what love requires of us. So there's a great many things in this world that we're never going to understand. But our lack of understanding never impedes our ability to put others first and ask the question, what does love require of us? So that's five questions that can change your life. Am I being honest with myself? That's integrity. What story do I want to tell? That's about legacy. Is there attention that needs my attention? That's your conscience. Based on my experiences, my circumstances and my dreams, what's the wise thing to do? That's maturity. And what does love 
require of me. That's relationships. So as you look over these questions, as I finish this whole series, what would I say to finish everything? I think it's that as you look over these questions and you review them and you think through them and you pray through them, you're going to notice things you wish you'd done differently. I've, every person I've talked to said, if I wish I had these questions 20 years ago, my life would have worked a whole lot different to the way it is now. And that might be true. But God's invitation to you now is to seek Him and from that place I believe God gives you the wisdom you need to move forward but also to heal that which has gone past. And so whatever this series might bring up good or bad allow it to draw you closer to God and that from that place really you might live out whatever time is left with, by making better decisions and living with fewer regrets. Let's pray together, church. Loving and gracious God, I thank you for the way you've spoken to us in this whole series. Such a rich and wonderful challenge. Lord, whether we want to hear it or not, Lord, you're speaking. I believe that. So Lord, give us the courage to listen and the courage to live it out in some way. Even if we don't do anything, at least give us the courage to look and ask the question. Because through that, I believe you are going to speak to us. But above all of this, help it to lead us to you the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who loved us first when we didn't deserve it, when we could do nothing to earn it. You served us on the cross. So may all of these questions lead us back to that truth, that we might discover once again or for the first time the love that you show us every single day. In your name we pray. Amen.